Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Conversations on Dance is generously supported by Yumiko. Have you seen the recent collaboration between MB Studios and Yumiko? Check out their website, yumiko.com, or their Instagram at yumiko and at yumiko world to view these new designs that include bags and backpacks that come in all shapes and sizes, and adorable makeup bags that say Merd, Susu, and Biaswan. Yumiko has also recently released a new line of t shirts and tote bags that you will want to make sure you check out. It's all up now on yumiko.com. This episode is brought to you by the Town of Vale, a sponsor helping to host the Vale Dance Festival in our community. I'm Rebecca King-Ferraro. And I'm Michael Breeden, and you're listening to Conversations on Dance. Today we are bringing you a live podcast recording from the Vale Dance Festival on the Vale premiere of The Little Prince. We are joined by choreographer Annabelle Lopez Ochoa and ballet ex-dancer who dances the title role in the piece, Roderick Pfeiffer. This episode was recorded on July 29th, 2019, one day before the ballet will hit the stage here in Vail on the evening of July 30th. Thank you all so much for coming out this morning and joining us here at Festival Forms here at the Vail Dance Festival. My name is Michael Breeden. And I'm Rebecca King-Ferraro, and we are the hosts of the podcast Conversations on Dance, and we're also former Miami City Ballet dancers. And we are here for two weeks at the festival to conduct live interviews such as these. Also, we will be conducting interviews um, and different podcast recordings with festival artists, so be sure to check out our podcast feed for that coming soon. So we're really happy to be here. So our guests today are Annabelle Lopez-Ochoa and Roderick Pfeiffer. Uh, Annabelle has choreographed The Little Prince, which will have its Vail premiere tomorrow night, and Roderick will be portraying the prince himself. So I think we can get started from there. Sure. So Roderick, let's start with you. Tell us a little bit about how you first got your start dancing and your training at North Carolina Dance Theater, working with Jean-Pierre Monfou and Patricia McBride. So I started dancing when I was two, um, competitively, so I started training in hip-hop, jazz, tap, all at the beginning. Um, a little bit down the road, I realized I needed some type of training, and 
which transferred me to North Carolina Dance Theater. And I trained there for about two years. And it taught me a lot just about discipline and, you know, ballet is so rigorous, but it's always been the same. So you have to learn different forms and how to conform and also how to keep that same structure, which was awesome. Um, and it helped build my my training along the way. But having that competitive background, I always wanted to still, you know, compete and still, right. you know, be in the realm of doing different things. So I actually stopped after I, I trained at North Carolina Dance Theater from about 2007 to, until 2009. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I started competing again until my senior year at school, which led me to the University of the Arts, where I graduated in 2017, and when I started at Ballet X for my first year. So my training is almost all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> um, I like to say I'm a man of, of many many traits only because I, I, I like to hold so many different things dear. I like to do a lot of things. I don't like to conform to one. So. Yeah. Yeah, is, is, that, that, bit, is that part of what appealed to you about Ballet X? Yes, and Ballet X is very much that. Um, we get to do a lot of different types of styles, and we get to work with so many different people, which makes us really special. And I, I really enjoy just being able to, you know, learn different different things and through different choreographers because so many different artists have different ways of, you know, speaking. Our love language is, is different. Um, so, yeah, Ballet X is a great place to to share that artistry and to experience those things, which is really great. So, Annabelle, um, we've been lucky enough to have you on the podcast in the past, and I know that some of our listeners will be familiar with your background, but if you could give uh, new audience members a little bit of a um, an overview of what your dance training was like. Uh, my dance training. So I uh, trained in the Vaganova technique in the classical ballet at the Royal Ballet of Flanders. Uh, but I, by the age of 15, I knew I was going to be a contemporary dancer because the tutu really didn't fit me, <laughs> neither psychologically, neither uh, physically. And so at 18, I joined a contemporary a company in the uh, uh, south of Germany. Then I changed company four times during my career. I went to uh, took another company in Heidelberg, and then I joined a modern jazz company in uh, in Holland. And then I finished with the Scapino Ballet, which was a contemporary company in uh, Rotterdam. And at the age of 30, I was done with that. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I had another passion that was just a little bigger. I started choreographing at the age of 11. And by the age of 28, 29, I was getting the munchies. And I wanted to choreograph all the time. So I stopped dancing at the age of 30. And that's like 16 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> so what appealed to you about switching companies so frequently? Was that just you were looking for different sources of inspiration or... Um, uh, yes, I wanted to dance more, so I, I joined a uh, dance theater's company in Germany. The dance theater is very big in Germany, and um, which is funny because now that I'm creating narratives, everything I learned when I was 18 and 19 are coming back to me. So uh, I loved hip-hop, so when I was young, at the age of 15, I would beg my mom to send me to Paris to uh, learn some you know, summer course of hip-hop and street dance. And so when I was 20, I joined a modern jazz company. And then with, they folded, unfortunately. And so I joined the Scapino Ballet and stayed in Holland. How were you balancing uh, your work as a choreographer while you were dancing? Um, I was always thinking of the next piece. But obviously at that age, when I was young, I was making one piece a year. And I would be done, you know, already six weeks before the premiere. I was done with my piece already. <laughs> Couldn't wait. And so um, my director saw that I was very passionate about it. And he invited me when I was, I think, 26, 27 to make a, a short piece for the company. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
So both of you have training from classical ballet. Both of you have classical ballet backgrounds. How do you feel that that informs your now contemporary work as a dancer or as a choreographer? How do you feel like you incorporate that into your work? Go ahead. I also like to choreograph, which is um, pretty interesting being in a company now and not being on that side all the time, but having a classical background, there's so much structure within it that you learn how to bend it in so many different ways and there's so many different loops to it. Um, it kind of creates just order without having the order at the same time. Um, but yeah, contemporary, I think it thrives from the classical, you know, everything comes from somewhere. I think the roots are just very strong. so. You kind of get to plant some seeds to see different flowers grow, which is pretty beautiful, mm-hmm. which I love about contemporary. There's just so many different options. There's so many different ways you can translate work to other people and to different audiences, which is pretty cool. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, it's, I'm invited as well as in the classical companies as in contemporary companies, so it, it helps to know uh, the background of my dancers and to help them uh, technically when they have to turn out or, you know, the better lines. And, mm-hmm. uh, but at the same time, my c- background as a contemporary dancer informs my, that my style, so mm-hmm. I can help both respect them, but uh, bring in the new. So do you feel like your work, um, when you're working with like a classical company, we talked to you when you were at San Francisco Ballet, and then now you're working with Ballet X, for example, do you feel like you kind of create pieces that are a little more classical when you're working with classical dancers, a little more contemporary when you're working with more contemporary dancers? Yes. Uh, so when I work f- with contemporary dancers, it's like I am dancing. Mm-hmm. So I'm making the work more on wh- what the way I move. Mm-hmm. And when I uh, work with a classical company, I sculpt the dance on the bodies that I have in front of me. Mm-hmm. And I'm amazed because they can do things that I cannot do at all. So it's quite amazing. <laughs> So uh, when you were transitioning uh, into full-time work as a choreographer, you know, it's a, a different beast when you're essentially freelancing, right? So you've been, you've been attached to companies your whole life as a dancer, but then how did you manage to sort of accrue enough commissions or work to fill your time? What was that uh, transition like? Um, it's a difficult transition financially and emotionally because nobody wants you. Nobody knows you. Um, so I, I was very fortunate that I had had an injury as a dancer. And because of that, I uh, entered the world of theater. And I had quite a few um, opp- opportunities to wor- work as a choreographer in uh, theater pieces that first few years that I stopped dancing. So I could, you know, have some money on the bank <laughs> and uh, pay my rent. And yeah, you have to send your stuff out in the world and you never get responses. You get a lot of the silent treatment. Mm-hmm. And then once in a while, somebody is interested, not so only because you're um, talented or they see something just because you're young and you're cheap. <laughs> but, I mean, let's, let's be honest, you know, you're, you're a cheap choreographer, you will do anything for any, any money mm-hmm. and they want new pieces. But those are the, the opportunities that you have to take with both hands and, you know, because it's, a, it's a, an art form that you have, it's a, a craft, so you have to practice. And the more you practice, the better you, mm-hmm. you get. And I always say I, I'm a choreographer that needs a lot of practice. Um, so um, 
in the beginning it was really you know struggling and making every small opportunity a big opportunity for me mm -hmm. to be constantly busy with choreography so I was very fortunate not to have to teach or work in a shop or in a restaurant I could be a choreographer from the moment that I stopped dancing mm -hmm. and then slowly people start to know your name they want to see you again and mm -hmm. from one thing goes the other yeah. I'm wondering was that a transition that was also difficult going from a place where as a dancer I feel like humility is so prized you know even if someone gives you a compliment I what you know didn't oh I, I was okay tonight or you know that sort of thing you're con constantly kind of underselling yourself but then in freelance you have to go out there and say you want me for this reason did that was that something that you dealt with or you felt like you were able to just be like, no, I'm you confident in this? No, you don't say you want me for a reason. Uh, you say, can I have an opportunity to do a choreography to, uh, to, to practice? Mm -hmm. And, you know, you know that people are taking a risk because with creativity and new work, you never know if it's going to be good or, or bad. And you need failure as a, an artist. So... I'm always grateful for directors that, you know, sometimes it's just not as good <laughs> as you wish, but, you know, they gave you that platform. And uh, um, so, yeah, it's, it's, there's still a lot of humility. You know that they're, they're taking a big risk. Yeah. So, Roderick, you also, as in addition to being a dancer at Ballet X, you also teach and choreograph in studios and schools around Philadelphia. How do you feel that being a current dancer and working with the next generation, how does that inform your current art and your dancing as you continue forward with your career? I value everything that I learn on a day-to-day -day basis, especially at work, and transferring that information to anyone that I um, am able to come in contact with, especially with um, being able to teach open classes at Ballet X is pretty awesome. Oh, nice. So, you know, working with people who have never seen me dance or you know, experience what I do. So trying to relate certain information and not being, you know, um, as picky as certain certain decisions that I get to make. Like, you know, my art is so vast. Like, you get to experience things with the person who's relaying the information. So it's awesome just to, you know, transfer that. Um, also, working back home is pretty cool. Um, mm. Sorry, I'm pretty nervous. I don't get to talk all the time, uh, so <laughs> please bear with me. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, working back home is pretty awesome. Just going and being able to do the same thing. And I came from a very small background, very mm -hmm. small home. So being able to go back home and they're like, wait, you're doing these things. Like, you're you're in Vail. Like, you're in a company. Because most people didn't think that I would ever ever right. join a ballet company because mm -hmm. that's not where my background originally originally happened so it's awesome to take these things and you know dissect them and to keep them generating and going through the vessels that I get to you know almost relay yeah. those those things so yeah yeah. Michael and I talk a lot about once we stopped dancing, we started teaching, which is normally a little more the way the trajectory goes. Once you stop, you start teaching. And it forces you to be a little more analytical, right? And right. kind of describe how you should feel, what right. this step should be like. And a lot of times I wonder, like, oh, if I had been teaching and dancing, how would that have impacted my technique? Do you feel yeah. like sometimes you go in the studio and you find different things because you were sort of forced to be analytical with your students? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Anytime. Um, and also, you know, valuing the differences that different people have, because a lot of the times um, insecurities just come from, you know, just 
watching so many different people and we're all so different and certain people have different abilities that certain people you know mm-hmm. don't so you kind of have to take in the things that you're that the god-given talents that you're given and how right. like how can you make yourself interesting mm-hmm. so i try to relay that message a lot just because certain people get so you know down on themselves they're like oh like i don't i don't feel like i can you know translate this the way you translate it to me but i'm like how you know, how would you translate this to someone who doesn't dance or, you know, movement is just so, it's so vast and there's so many different things that we can do, but just like the same thing, like this, this classical structure that's always there, just like mm-hmm. being able to bend it and, and show different, different, you know, mirrors of yourself mm-hmm. and how can you, you know, show that to other people. So mm-hmm. it's always, it's always great just to, you know, be analytical, but also, you know, curve around it a little bit as well. Find a way to inspire. Inspire, absolutely, yeah. always. Yeah. <laughs> so tomorrow night is the premiere of Little, the Veil premiere of Little yes. Prince, and I know since we started talking to Damien way back, um, it's been one of the things he's been most excited about for this upcoming festival. Um, so we're all really looking forward to it. But I'm wondering, how did the idea for this project come about to begin with? Um, so uh, I had already made three works for Ballet X, and Christine told me, "Let's you know, let's talk about the next." project and she said we would really love uh, you know for you to think uh, of a narrative because mm-hmm. I had done already a couple of in the in the past and so I, I thought of a piece that would be you know a chamber narrative for only 10 dancers because I don't have you know a corps de ballet of 26 beautiful wheelies boring <laughs> unfortunately but uh, so I, I remember that book that I read when I was really young that was The Little Prince mm-hmm. and I read it many times as I grew up every time I would learn a language I would read it in that language because it's quite easily written. The, the style is very childish, like a child, but actually the, the themes are very grown-ups and mature. And so she loved it. She knew the book. And that's how it came about that we chose The Little Prince. Just really quick, how many languages do you speak? <laughs> I speak four languages. Wow. That's amazing. That's so cool that you have such an emotional connection to the book and the yeah. story. So can you tell us just, it's very iconic, but can you give us a brief overview of this narrative and how you, if, if you had to make any changes in order to adapt it to just dance and showing it on stage? Yeah. So uh, the, the narrative is uh, there's a pilot and he crashes in the desert and he's got eight days of water supply. Mm-hmm. So he has to finish, uh, he has to fix his plane in these eight days. And as he's dehydrating and fixing his plane, he's starting to hallucinate. And in this hallucination, there's a little prince that shows up and appears and asks him to draw a sheep. Mm-hmm. And he's just stunned, but he goes along, but he, okay, here's a sheep, and I go along and, and you know, uh, keep going and work on my plane. But the little prince is like, no, no, that's not a good sheep. That's, you know, he's, he doesn't smile, and then he drives, uh, draws a few sheeps. And in the end, he's so annoyed that he's like, okay, you know what, here's a box with a sheep in it. And the little prince, he's stunned because the little prince is really happy with that little box. He says, that's exactly what I was looking for. And so the... Uh, the story goes that um, in the book that the little prince tells him where he comes from and why he needs the little sheep and he made this journey uh, along eight, uh, six different planets before arriving uh, on, on earth and on earth he met a snake and he met rose bushes so he tells all of that to the pilot and it creates a sort of relationship mm-hmm. and at the very end they both dehydrate more and more and they look for the water mm-hmm. and they find a well and so the pilot uh, survives because he has water and he can fix his engine and leave the desert but the little prince uh, dies and actually only 
very uh, lately I found out why he died because I thought I was always so cruel from the the writer right. and actually it's because he's a hallucination so once the pilot survives that means that his hallucinations fades away so right. he doesn't really die it's just the, the memory of the little prince fades um, a book is 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 not never good if you just put it like that on stage. Right. A book is not a play because usually in plays they are constructed in such a way that there's a lot of action happening. Mm -hmm. And in this book, uh, a lot of the story is being it's the little prince telling a story to the pilot. So basically, the two dancers don't move because they are talking about something that happened in the past. So we had to make quite a big change in uh, thinking how to involve the pilot, which is the main character, mm -hmm. and have him more actively in the dance. Otherwise, the audience would think, well, I don't care about you just sitting on the side like us watching the <laughs> ballet. So we decided to have um, a different intake uh, perspective, which is for me uh, the snake who symbolizes death is the narrator. And he tells a story about a pilot who crashes in the desert and has to find a way and a reason why he wants to survive. And on his way in the, in, in the state of dehydration, he has all these existential questions about life and about relationship. And the little prince is his inner voice. And he comes and uh, tells him to join him on this journey because he has to escape death. And so the snake will physically, the, he will go after them. Mm -hmm. And they'll, you'll see that you know every time they have to escape him. So that's how I could find a way to have the, the pilot involved in all these different planets, uh, the journeys. Mm -hmm. um, and so at the end, it stays like in the book where the, the pilot, they find the water together, but the pilot survives and the little prince unfortunately the hallucination has to fade away yeah i feel like as we're all adjusting to altitude here in vale <laughs> dehydration <laughs> sounds like a good theme <laughs> so in your previous work at ballyx had you guys worked together no this is the first, your first time, time. Actually, uh, uh, there were three new dancers for me this time around so why did you think roderick was the right fit for the little prince uh so the first day and first two days we tried a few scenes that I had in mind and it's really uh, just intuition I try not to see who's the best dancer I just try to see who is the most um, characterized like typecasted to the characters that I have in mind and so he just came across as a little prince. <laughs> also because, you know, it, uh, during six weeks I had to always say, Roderick, where are you? <laughs> he's always somewhere, <laughs> but never really there in the middle. He's always sort of looking, his phone, he forgets this, I don't know. He was just, he was like a little prince. And he always has these eyes that he's amazed. Like, and so I would choreograph and he'd be like, oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> which is great for my ego <laughs> but for me I was like and that's why you're the little prince because you're amazed by everything and so you will see why you know for example the pilot is uh, Zach and why the snake is danced by um, Stanley it's just they really typecast it in that and yeah in, in a few minutes you see who is who right right so, Roger, can you tell us a little bit about what the rehearsal process was like? Uh, Annabelle just mentioned that you had six weeks and you maybe didn't start right at the beginning of the ballet. You started in different scenes. Give us a little sneak peek behind the scenes. <laughs> so when we originally started, um, it was almost just a day of, you know, just creating and just trying to figure out 
what we were going to do with these boxes and these things. Annabelle actually came a few months before we actually started the piece consecutively over those six weeks of rehearsal. So we saw her for, I think there was one one or two days that we had just... One oh, day in October. One day, one day, one day in October. Oh, so the six weeks were not like bing, bang, boom. It was no, all... No, we, we just one. had one workshop day because... Oh, okay. the, oh, so what I didn't tell is that in the concept you have a, a box where there's a little sheep and I decided that everything would be made out of boxes. Okay. Also because since the theme of the piece is imagination, uh -huh. I wanted the audience to use their own imagination to figure out what these boxes were. And so right. they can be dunes, they can be sand, they can be everything. Oh, okay. yeah. So we had one day in October where we would just play with boxes. Oh. Throw them, crash in them, go inside of them, oh push them. Day, yeah. <laughs> it was awesome, and so just to Annabelle is such a creative person, very someone who's of the spur of the moment, and you know gets to see see it and then just mm -hmm. you know go with it. So that was great, just to see where her her brain was like with the process. Like she was just super open to everything, which is awesome. So once we got into the six weeks of rehearsals, it started off, um, you know, from beginning to the end, which is sometimes choreographers like to go in so many different ways. So mm -hmm. it was nice nice to see it go in chronological order um, as far as the story so we as dancers and this is a story that I did not grow up on um, so it was nice to feel like you were experiencing it almost mm -hmm. like as it was happening right. and just her knowledge as far as theater was just so incredible like she would kind of give you obviously the steps but how you react mm -hmm. to someone telling you or like doing something to you rather than thinking of it and then knowing like okay I'm gonna go here I'm gonna do this I'm gonna do that it's mm -hmm. like it's a natural reaction and as far as like the audience they want to feel that genuine relationship with the with the character so it was awesome to see her dive into that as, right. as far as you know the characters relationships and mm -hmm. the choreography because it's such a hard thing to do mm -hmm. you know as as total so just working with her in general was super hands-on yeah. and very understanding. She understood what she wanted us to feel mm -hmm. throughout this piece and what she wanted the audience to feel. So right. it made it so much more clear to me, especially yeah. someone who didn't grow up on this story or had no idea of what the actual symbolism was. And there's so much symbolism within the little prince. And we think it's a, a, a child's story or a children's book, but it's actually so much, so much more, more, so much more than that. So. It was nice for her to, you know, weave that in with the choreography and right. with just the simple, um, you know, acting relationships throughout the different characters and, right. you know, the dancers. We also had the dramaturg coming at the very oh. end, and I knew that she was going to do one uh, specific um, actor's really. Um, Course, uh, not course, uh, exercise, uh -huh. and it's really about the you know the basic of acting is reacting, right. because uh, actors never say that they act, they play in a place. So the play has to be like a ping pong. You see something, you react, and so for dancers, because we have our choreography, sometimes we don't react. We just know that on two, three, it's my uh -huh. elbows, my mom, <laughs> and so it's not a real reaction. So although you set it on on music, you have to tell, uh, remind them that they have to react with this choreography. You first have to see what he does, then you react, and then it's going to be more real. So that was a whole process of of uh, making them understand and experience that. Uh -huh. And I think you know, in the two weeks of performances at, uh, in Philadelphia. 
they they sort of uh, I I hope I wasn't there I was just there for the first three <laughs> but I hope that they uh, understood and felt that the audience was reacting more and connecting more mm -hmm. when they allowed themselves not to know the choreography mm -hmm. but to just react whenever they saw things in front of them that's so interesting we did that when we did Romeo and Juliet we had a dramaturg come in and he made us do exercises where we had to like speak and <laughs> all the dancers were like we can't do this is that what it was like like what was the exercises you were doing very much so so we had two chairs and mm -hmm. basically we didn't have to speak at this specific moment but um, she would give us a scenario um, basically there would be one person they would have an objective to try to prove a point mm -hmm. and the other person would have to try and you to know, prove another point to prove another point and right. like what like we had two completely different objectives mm -hmm. and so just with your body language how do you get someone to say something like you know like oh I want to go on a date with you so if I pulled up my chair next to you but I don't want to be too you know right, it's like right. how like how do you express that with your body without mm -hmm. being you know too over exaggerative or you know to yeah so it was it was really it's cha challenging for dancers because you don't have choreography because you don't have choreography so, so you she, have to come up with it <laughs> exactly and she did she made us like you know explain how we felt in the process because you know showing it with your body is just so much different than being able to speak and being able to you know relay that so mm -hmm. so yeah. were you eager to kind of step outside your box in this way and explore narrative or was it something that you had a little bit of trepidation I was so excited <laughs> <laughs> um, so. Way back when, um, my mom, she used to put me and my brother in the theatrical summer camp, so we would have six weeks to put on musicals, and they would be the junior version of certain musicals. I did, like, Schoolhouse Rock, like Aladdin, mm -hmm. Oklahoma, random things. So these these things, back in the day, that I had no idea that I would use in my actual career, I thought it was so cool. I'm like, how do I get to, you know, use... A narrative or use a, a you know a character in in dance because usually certain things are just very abstract pieces could you know could just be movement mm -hmm. or just like being able to have a character and work on a characteristic was just super and um, also a, a, a development a de yeah, development that's that's the the hardest yeah. also yeah, yeah for so, sure so Annabelle what about for you as a choreographer I know you your work often has a real point of departure, but was narrative specifically something that you had explored a lot? Uh, yes, I love narrative. I find them very challenging, very hard. And every time I make a narrative, I can't wait to do just an abstract piece. <laughs> it's so hard. It's also because narrative is there and you, uh, you know, you're an employee of the narrative. You want the audience to actually see a story you don't want to lose them halfway and think oh it's beautiful dancing I'll just you know look at the dancing mm -hmm. so I had my first experience in 2012 with a streetcar named Desire for the Scottish Ballet and I realized how much I love the challenge mm -hmm. and you think I mean it was a, a very successful piece and then you think well the next piece will be easy well it's not <laughs> <laughs> it is every time it's so hard also because you try different ways of uh, uh, narratives every time so with this piece the, the dramaturg came we we had a um first we worked six months before i arrived at in, in philly we worked on a script and then i did the whole piece based on the script after three days i already changed the script <laughs> and then she came two weeks before the premiere and she said well you made a few changes to the script but now you have to pull them through through the entire story so I had to make a lot of changes choreographical changes mm -hmm. 
And then even two days before the premiere, we had to have a change also because there was too much uh, drama at the end and we didn't have enough energy, physical energy. So I had to come up with a whole new scene. And these dancers just were in for the, for the ride. I don't know, they just kept it. I was becoming more and more uh, nervous and, and they were just chill. It was amazing. They're just like, we trust you, Annabelle. Just go for it. Tell us what to do. That's so interesting that you work with the dramaturg as well to kind of, so they also aided you in making sure that you had a storyline and were kind of going through it in the way you wanted? Uh, yeah, well, I, I, I really believe in having, uh, I mean, she's also a theater director, a mm -hmm. dramaturg when I do narrative because mm -hmm. I haven't learned the basics of theater mm -hmm. and, you know, how to translate a book or how to translate a movie right. uh, into ballet. You just need help. Mm -hmm. and, and she's so smart, this yeah. woman. So w was she there for the whole process? Like when you were at the beginning, beginning, when, they, when you just said with Christine, like, okay, we, we're going to do this project. What and was the first step, kind of? The first step was me choosing the book. Mm -hmm. Then I started uh, having the, the concept, so the boxes and mm -hmm. the snake. And then I had seven scenes, and then uh, Tris Christine said, we have a bit of budget for a dramaturg. And I was like, yes. yes. <laughs> and so uh, Nancy Meckler came along, and then we finished the script. And then comes the composer. He comes like the last day of the brainstorm of the script, mm -hmm. and he says a few things. And then I have then a Dropbox relationship with the, the, the composer. I work with him on each scene and he comes up with ideas. And then I tell him, well, that scene will be, I think, three minutes and 20 seconds. And there comes the three minutes and 20 seconds. And then he came two weeks before the premiere because he's also playing the music live on stage. And so he uh, reacted on the length of music or the you know, dynamic of what it was needed. Was this someone who had uh, composed for ballet or dance in general? Um, yes, frequently? Nancy Meckler and Peter Salem, the composer, are my team on the street, Carnegie Design and mm. on Frida oh, Kahlo. Great. So this is our third project together. Awesome. Tell us a little bit more about that Dropbox relationship. I'm a little interested in how like the, that comes together. I would imagine that's quite a long process. And by the time you get there for those six weeks, you want the music oh, done. Oh, yeah. yeah. The entire music was done when right. I arrived in the studio. Uh -huh. So he had three different sketches for the, the king. Mm -hmm. And one was a little more uh, conventional. The other one was more uh, deconstructed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and then he had, you know, all the planets. And he asked me, which version do you like? And I said, you know, I like the 30 seconds of that king and mm -hmm. then I said you know two minutes and as I'm working with the dancer I say well the, the scene of the king will be a little longer mm -hmm. can you add 15 seconds or I would edit the music and send to him and say you know show him what I did with the music right. to lengthen it or shorten it and that's where the drop box relationship starts <laughs> that's very yeah. cool. we have a lot of versions of every uh, scenes <laughs> And uh, what about the set and costume design? How much did you have a back and forth with them? Because obviously, you know, that informs the way we feel about a piece no matter what. Even if it's no sets and costumes, that's saying something. But for a narrative, that's really important. So how did you communicate with those designers to ensure that they were on board with your vision? Uh, so with the set designer, I said, you know, I said, I want boxes. And uh, he brought boxes that were brown, white, and then we decided it would be white boxes. Mm -hmm. And then he had uh, the idea of putting, you know, the psych, the white side mm -hmm. would be made out of boxes. And the rest would be a wall or something. But that has changed even like a week before the premiere when we arrived on stage, you know, three mm -hmm. days. I put the boxes in a different uh, constellation. And uh, the dancers came in and they're like, uh-oh, what are we going to do? I say, yeah, there's a change. <laughs> 
so we had worked for uh, five weeks with a row a box that was just like uh, two walls, a diagonal wall and a, and, and a small diagonal wall, and then it became four islands. Mm. So some of the choreography had to change. And, you know, the, the set designer knew that those boxes were going to be mobile and, you know, every day we'll have a new idea with it. And also for the lighting where we had to set them and for the sidelines and stuff like that. And with the costume designer, that was a little bit of a longer process because she wasn't in Philly. Uh, she came with some ideas in the, at the very beginning of the six weeks and then we noticed that it didn't fit the language of the boxes, mm -hmm. which is so raw and mm -hmm. simple. And so she had to go back to the drawing board and I said, it has to look like, uh, not the four main characters, but all the sub-characters, mm -hmm. has to look like it's a child that decided to make a drawing on some white canvas. And so she had to do that, redo that, and it was finished like a day before the show. <laughs> so interesting talking about these changes that happen. Roderick, as a dancer, how do you kind of, I don't want to say cope with that, but kind yeah, of. Yeah, no, seriously. Uh, yeah. How did you guys cope? Uh, just because when you're creating a new work, this often happens with choreographers, there has to be last minute changes out of necessity, out of whatever. So how do you kind of adapt to that? So I must say the dancers make it so much easy, easier um, to deal with just because, you know, everyone has this like super chill mentality and everyone's like super open to everything. So with this specific process, we knew there were gonna be a lot of changes and things. So we kind of just had like, we already knew like what to ex what to expect, like especially at the end of it. But yeah, we, we just kind of maintained our cool and did the best that we could, you know, mm -hmm. to fulfill Annabelle's, you know, dream. Cause it's a, it's a, you know, one relationship. Like we have to give and take, you know, mm -hmm. from each other. So we just tried to be able to fulfill what we, could do it the best way mm -hmm. that we could as possible just so Annabelle could see what she wanted to see on the stage. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. He didn't have to deal with that. We had a, a big scene change uh, for a group. It's a group uh, oh, dance. Yeah. And uh, you were not <laughs> yeah, in that group I dance. I was not in that section. <laughs> so <laughs> it was wonderful to see them work as a unit and you could feel the energy of, okay, we just barely know the steps but we're gonna make it work mm -hmm. and find ways of giving cues of you follow me and I give a cue here because the music was there and here was a choreography mm -hmm. so it was I was just like crossing my fingers and my toes on that premiere thinking I hope they remember the steps and, <laughs> and it goes well and that's when you really feel the family vibe of, of ballet X, those 10 dances that are a unit really for you as a choreographer is there a point where you say Okay, I'm done changing. Like the work Never. is out there. Okay, so that's it. Yeah, that's, I want to know. Because, you know, if, if it gets a revival, let's say two years down, would you think, like, maybe I'm going to reapproach this? You're always kind of thinking yeah, about. Definitely. I mean, even now uh, in Vail, because the stage is so different and it's uh, going to be for a much larger audience, uh, we will need to add some energetic energetical movements just to, you know, the distance between the, the center of the stage and the wing is longer. So there'll be a few leaps added, a few turns added, oh. and maybe I will like them, <laughs> and they, like they will stay. They will <laughs> remain in the you know in the version for the Wilma Theater, and yeah, obviously you know you make a piece because of what um, what you uh, at what stage you are as a person, a human mm -hmm. being, and the idea of having you know death so uh, omnipresent is because. I turned 40 a couple of years ago and suddenly I realized that I was, you know, life wasn't forever. Mm -hmm. And um, because you are more, you know, you have the only certainty you have is that we're all going to die. Why waste time with being, you know, fearful of things or, you know, um, 
pettiness. Mm -hmm. And so I made this piece with, you know, having death behind them, you know, chasing them on their heels all the time. And that's because I was that person. I feel that uh, at that moment. But maybe in 10 years, I will not have the same relationship to that. Mm -hmm. And so I'll see the piece differently and make, you know, put an emphasis on something else. Interesting. Yeah. So, Roderick, what are you looking forward to in being able to revisit this work? I feel like when there's a world premiere, sometimes that work's put away for maybe a year or so. You don't often get to revisit it within a month, a right? Or a week. A week. Oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> Wonderful. So how, what are you looking forward to in being able to, like, bring this to another audience and kind of bring it back? Sure. Yeah. Um, being that we, we premiered it two weeks ago in Philadelphia and just seeing where the piece actually you know, where where it grew within those two weeks is such a short time span, you mm -hmm. know, to actually dissect like what you're doing and how the audience is relaying to your, you know, what you're presenting to them. So being able to do it for a different audience in a different place is, mm -hmm. um, especially so soon is, you know, it's, it's overwhelming, but it's very rewarding at the same mm -hmm. time. Um, just being able to see what a different, completely different group um, will, will take in of mm -hmm. what we're doing. So it's exciting. Um, I don't know. It's just like I think way, the biggest challenge just... will be how, because the Wilma is quite intimate. Uh -huh. How can we um, convey the energy, the symbolism, and all the emotions to a much bigger, you know, venue, mm -hmm. and you know, to reach the people all the way in the back? Right. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's going to be, yeah, it's going to feel a bit like a new piece. I and think being outside in general is like, yeah. so fun. <laughs> you know, it's, it's so fun, and with the set is. It's almost like a different a different world. So just being able to to bring these two relationships in with nature and with and with what we're sharing is it's almost it's so magical. So yeah, it's, it's yeah, because the stars that the little prince is always relating to are gonna be there for real. We won't yeah. need that as a set. <laughs> they are here. Right, so. Yeah. So is rehearsal this afternoon or evening where you'll be making these adaptations? Yeah, we'll be making these adaptations yeah. from 5 to 12 tonight. Oh, wow. <laughs> we'll come at 5 and maybe we'll peek a little. And <laughs> well, we look forward to seeing it tomorrow. We want to open the floor to some questions from our audience, if any of you have some things for Annabelle or Roderick. No? Yes. How much do you have to... Uh Modify your style and expression because you're at 8,000 feet. Ooh. We'll see today. <laughs> um, I feel like I have to do it a little bit more because you guys will be so far away. Um, just the, the small expressions, they make s such a difference. And, you know, being that we were at the Wilma, the audience is right there so they can see everything. So I feel like it's going to be so much harder with the altitude with everything just over over exaggerating over expressing everything just so everyone can feel the entire you know feeling of the yeah, intentions of the yeah. Intentions, yeah everything yeah Roderick you're a veiled professional now though you this is your third year out here third so year. Yeah. so fast how to that I mean what like the first time you came out here what was the altitude change like for you and what do you do um, as a dancer to cope so my first performance was at Breckenridge um before we had our um, first performance at the Ford Theater, and I had my first anxiety attack ever. <laughs> oh, <laughs> um, no. Yeah, I I, kind of, I went off stage and I was just like, what? What's happening? Like, why because can't I like, why can't I breathe? <laughs> just because like you're you're trying to you know calmly think about taking it in and you know just you know just dancing is something that we 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 all do on a day to day basis. So just like being able to stay like in that calm mind space. But three years later. Um, I don't know. Every experience is always different. Um, and just 
the simple fact that we come every every year it's just like so many different things happen in the year so many mm-hmm. different lessons like you learn um so just coming back and being being able to share in general is just such an honor and a privilege um so yeah i'm just i'm completely humbled by the experience such an inclusive group such an incredible group of dancers and individuals and seeing all the different performances and different people Mm -hmm. um so it's a lot to live up to for sure (laughs) but yeah i'm i'm very excited it's gonna be great yeah look forward to it any other questions i want to ask about the photo photo the photo is is probably the most powerful marketing photo i've ever seen (laughs) so the funny thing about this photo is um my godfather, Michael Sheridan, he's um, Damien's assistant. Um, So the day of the photo shoot, the photo is from Niccolo Fonte piece, Beast, which was the the jacket, the jacket, um, a few years back. So we were having the photo shoot. This is my last photo of the day. And I was like, I want to use this jacket. And Michael Sheridan, he was like, do not wear that coat. He's like, it's been used before. He's like, you know, whatever, try to put on something new. And I was like, I really like that coat. I want to see what I can do with this jacket. (laughs) So that picture was actually my last shot that I took over the whole extensive (laughs) photo shoot time. And at the time, we didn't know that he was going (laughs) to be the little prince. prince At all. So it... (laughs) It wasn't, even on it wasn't on purpose at all. I literally, I was like, I really dig this coat, and I want to see what I can, what I can do with it. And I was so tired. He was like, Your arm needs to be this way. Your leg needs to be this way. And I was just trying to maintain the calmness in my face. So I, I'm so, <laughs> so, <laughs> just so excited that the picture actually came out the way, the way That's that awesome. it did. You know. Yeah. But most definitely, my, I think my favorite picture I've ever taken in my life, and I. I'm I'm not one of the dancers who 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 likes to take photos, so I'm very very proud of that that one picture. It's <laughs> a great one. Yeah. Back here, I so saw you had one. So, are you going to be having live music in the performance yes. here, and why is that? Why live music? First, because it's amazing. It's uh, amazing. We so the the composer is going to be the musician. He plays four instruments, and so obviously he won't be playing everything. There will be a, a soundtrack that he starts on his computer, and then he takes a, an instrument and plays over it. And so sometimes you don't know what he plays because you're like, is he on he on the keyboard? <laughs> on the, so why? Because we wanted to, and also yeah, for me, you know, if you can have. Uh, a musician is also an actor so there was this one moment where I use him as an actor <laughs> yes. oh, that's cool. otherwise it's just like well have him in the orchestra pit um, right. so that's that's why I wanted to you know I didn't have enough time with him unfortunately otherwise I would have done more things with him theatrically um, but you know with all the the cables and stuff like that we would have wished that he would walk also in the scenes but unfortunately that could not happen but yeah, live music is always beautiful, and then when you have the composer that can play it, and you know he knows where to, he can make the melody a little bit different, like with the uh, mouth uh, thing when he's doing the the drunk, the harmonica. Then you know whenever he the har- the drunk uh, falls, he can go. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the fun part of it. I have one for Annabelle. Is there another narrative work that you're interested in tackling maybe next? I know you want to do abstract now because you just did a narrative, but is there something else you kind of have your eye on? Uh, yeah, I mean, we are going to do, I did a Broken Wings for English National Ballet three years ago that was on the life of Frida Kahlo that was 48 minutes. Mm-hmm. Another Dutch National Ballet has asked me to do a full length of that. 
so that is in next February. And then I'm going to do a remake of the uh, Dangerous Liaisons, the Glenn Close movie uh, for Royal New Zealand Ballet. Cool. And then I'm going to do Evita for uh, Ballet Hispanico. Oh. 50 years. So a lot of stuff to look yes. forward to. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so it, with this particular collaboration, you got to choose the narrative. Have you ever had one of these projects where you were commissioned and they said, we want you to do this story? Evita okay. was a commission. Was yes. that scary for you to undertake? Cause it wasn't... Uh, no, because I think she's an interesting uh, figure right. in history. And, uh-huh. you know, she's very, um, yeah. Yeah. It's 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 still in the making, the progress. Do I like this woman or not? I'm not sure. <laughs> Time will tell. Exactly. So that's uh, yeah. No, it's it's fun. I love I love narratives. Mm-hmm. Well, we look forward to that, and we obviously look forward to seeing the Little Prince tomorrow night. So thank you both for joining us today, and thank you to our audience. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. A special thanks to Tom Boyd, director of PR in the Gerald R. Ford Amphitheater, for recording, mixing, and editing this interview. Stay tuned to our social media this week as we continue to release content directly from the Vail Dance Festival as it happens. This episode has been made possible by the Town of Vail, a sponsor helping to host the Vail Dance Festival in our community. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.